0: This podcast is my opinion and interpretation of the historical events that I will discuss. The purpose of the podcasts are, in general, to discuss American and world history in a way that engages you and explains so much of the country and the world around you. But i also discuss it in a way that is understandable and interesting. Welcome to podcast number 21. In the last podcast, we looked at how definition-ridden this next era of world history is as we get further and further or deeper and deeper into the Middle Ages. So we concluded with our discussion on Islam, and then we looked at the burgeoning uh, rise of feudalism, looking at those definitions of feudalism, what a lord was, a feud or fief. We discussed what a vassal was, and then those two overarching realities that with distance came weakness, thus political power became more local, but also that due to the advances and changes in warfare, defense became far more expensive. Again, a skyrocketing reality that never ceases or slows down, even into the 21st century. So in this next podcast, what we're looking at today is the rise of one particular medieval or middle-aged family by the name of the Merovingians who will eventually marry into the Carolingians. This, like the podcast before that was definition heavy, this one is name heavy. It's also a point of world history that my students cringe when they see all the names that we're going to discuss. But again, I put their minds at ease when I tell them, don't worry about it. Just like the first exam, nothing changes. I'm not gonna test them on names or even on dates. The reason being is that what we're looking at here is a period of time that started in 732 AD and lasted until 843 AD. In the whole context of world history, we're talking a small bleep in time. But what, rather than focusing on the dates or years or focusing on the names, what I want students to walk away with, if nothing more, is further validation of what I said several podcasts ago about the impact of Roman Catholicism on the mindset of Western Europeans. Because again, if we took Roman Catholicism out of this podcast that we're about to begin, there's really not much to talk about. And what we're going to see is the way the layperson manipulates the church in order to get what the family wants. So who are we talking about when we mention these Carolingians? First of all, the first name we come into Um, context within the Merovingian dynasty is an individual by the name of Clovis. Clovis was a typical middle-aged male that realized that the Roman Empire was long gone at this point or was at least thousands of miles away closer to modern-day Istanbul. What's more is he needed strength. He needed to provide for his own protection. So you have two choices when you don't have a local army to maintain law and order. You can either play the defense, which in some cases seems like you're at everybody else's whim, or you're in a reactionary mode, or you can be proactive and go on the offense. And that's what the, that's the path that Clovis chose, was to engage in military battle with the neighboring Germanic tribes. Because of the... Because of the element of surprise, the onset of his battles oftentimes were taken with complete surprise by the enemy and therefore gave him a lot of quick early victories. His military victories, therefore, also started to add to his wealth from the conquered territories. The problem is that even though he convinced the neighboring territories that he wasn't interested in subjugation, he wasn't interested in conquering in a negative way, but to unify for the purposes of a common defense, the problem was he couldn't convince the people in these adjacent territories, much less even his own people, to follow him. They showed him no allegiance. And this wasn't for personal ego problems that he was angry that they weren't following him. They had to follow him for purposes of safety and security. He had to be able to have a chain of command that when they saw an oncoming threat, that they had the organization of command to be able to respond. But they weren't interested in that. Rather, the people were too interested in following their faith, not in following him. So, Any podcast listeners out there in podcast land that can help Clovis out here? Anybody have any ideas on what he might be able to do to try to get people to show him at least some allegiance in addition to the faithfulness that they were giving to the Roman Catholic Church? In this way, Clovis tore a page out of Constantine's playbook. If you can't beat him, Join him. So rather than fight the Roman Catholic Church for allegiance and domination, Clovis essentially gave in and he asked for and received support of the papacy when he converted to Christianity. And of course, he made his baptism public. He made the receiving of the body and blood of Christ a very public event. He Largely, folks, one could argue was the world's first politician to join an organization in which to get the allegiance of the people. If there were newspapers at the time, if there was social media at the time, the pictures that Clovis would have wanted is him shaking hands with the Pope. In order to spread that around his small dominion of principalities, to be able to convince the people that to follow the church is to follow me. And the fact, again, that he converted to Christianity made him a favorite son of the Roman Catholic Church. So for Clovis, mission accomplished. But the problem is that Clovis can't live forever. And that's where we get the emergence of the Carolingian dynasty. Because there was a man by the name of Pippin I, who was a major advisor to Clovis and the Merovingians, And Pippin recognized the manipulation that Clovis was engaging in. And rather than being angry about it, Pippin actually admired it. However, Pippin was a nobody. Uh, A major advisor is a major role, but he was still an outsider. So what Pippin did was to marry several of his children into the Merovingian family. In other words, to combine the bloodlines something that we still see going on today throughout world history throughout the world in world history where we have major families that marry one another's children into another in order to combine it and if you think yeah again that's just on the outside look at the nixon's and the eisenhower's for example a more modern example so when pip I the first marries his children into the merovingian family Pippin's son, Pippin II, and his son, Charles Martel, they fight off any other family gaining influence within the kingdom. They, in other words, become the gatekeepers. And in 732 AD, at the Battle of Poitiers, Charles Martel defeated the advancing tribes of Muslims who were also trying to spread their faith. So in 732 Martel halted the Muslim expansion and allowed a distinct post-Roman Empire European society to form. Yes, on the grounds, you could say, is this not the way that Greece started to become eventually an empire? Is this not the way that Romulus and Remus started in Rome, eventually giving way to the Roman Empire? Yes, but it won't end that way. Stick with me to understand why this is the start of the traditional definition of umpire. But it will not last. A sneak preview as to why. Because what begins in 732 AD will be gone, literally, and less than 115 years later. So, Charles Martel and his family stop Muslim invasions from the south into the north. They're able to gain some favor by their deeds with the Roman Catholic Church. But this is now a Christian family where everybody is being baptized. The papacy therefore is no longer impressed with the Merovingian and Carolingian families because, well, baptism is kind of old hat now. Somebody can of hierarchy in the high upper echelons of the hierarchy that converts to Catholicism or to Christianity, that's kind of no big deal. Your ancestors have been doing this now, Charles. So what else have you got for me? And that's where Charles grabs another ace out of his sleeve, and he donates land to the papacy. Yes, free and clear donates land that he has conquered and gives it to the Roman Catholic Church. On the surface, it may seem, wow, Charles, how generous of you. But number one, he's not giving his own land. He's giving land that he already conquered from another civilization, for starters. Secondly, finish this phrase for me. Give your enemy just enough rope and they're liable to? Exactly. Hang themselves with it. And that is the, those are the seeds that Charles is sowing in this donated land. Stick with me. So Charles' successors, Pippin Third also is able to acquire papal support. How? Once again, donating more and more land to the papacy, making the Roman Catholic Church one of the larger estates in post-Roman Empire Europe at this point. However, Pippin III has two sons that should supposedly be carrying on the family's gains. But his two sons, Carloman and Charles, were kind of mirror images of another man that we spoke about several podcasts ago called Hamilcar Barca. Hamilcar had two sons, Hasdrubal and Hannibal. Hasdrubal was the far more studious, priest-like of the two, and therefore was not interested in dad's military campaigns. Hannibal, as we saw, a uh, very different story. Same scenario here. Pippin III's two sons, Carloman, entered the priesthood and largely wanted nothing to do with military or politics, which suited his younger brother, Charles, just fine, because Charles, therefore, was able to follow in his father's footsteps, again, just like Alexander and just like Hannibal. He continued to find favor in any way or capacity that he could with the Roman Catholic Church. He solidified his father's, grandfather and great-grandfather's landholdings, and it was then that he began to conquer more territory immediately upon the knowledge of his father's death. Charles will go on to conduct over 50 military campaigns. Supposedly, he only lost one. Then why in these podcasts am I not discussing his military campaigns like I did Alexander and Hannibal? And it has nothing to do with preference, but rather everything to do with what we learned from them. You see, Alexander's history was written by his supporters as well as his enemies to give us a rather complete picture of the gains that Alexander had made. Therefore, we could truly get an unbiased as well as a biased assessment. Secondly, Alexander did things that were brand new on the battlefield that future civilizations carried with them. Hannibal, somewhat likewise. Ironically enough, we don't see a lot of writing simply because they don't exist of Hannibal's supporters. Because as you remember, after Hannibal was killed, and then in the following Third Punic War, the Carthaginian Empire was wiped off the map and all records that went with it. So rather, Hannibal's history, believe it or not, was written by his enemies. Yet, Why then did I speak about Hannibal so positively? Because that's what the Romans did. The Romans were pragmatic enough that as much as they wanted to hate Hannibal, which they were free to do and did, they also were smart enough to know that we came within an eyelash of being conquered by that man. What did he do that got us to the brink? They needed to learn from it. The only way you're going to learn from it is to study those accounts and teach them to the next generations. That's why we know about Hannibal and the different aces that he pulled out of his sleeve. With Charles, we don't have that. There's nothing to our knowledge that Charles did on the battlefield that was brand new or out-of-the-box thinking. Secondly, every one of Charles's campaigns was written by one man, was recorded by one man by the name of Einhard, Einhard was Charles's biographer. Therefore, what I'm trying to get at is Einhard is obviously going to be very biased in favor of what his master or his boss did. So for that reason, we don't discuss those as well. So with Charles, he's out of options. He is a conquered and acquired now because of his father, grandfather, and great-grandfather's land holdings. He has more land under one family's flag than any of his predecessors in his family's history. But what's happening now is the Roman Catholic Church is wavering in its support of Charles. Charles has no more aces that it can pull out of its sleeve. He can't convert to Christianity because he was baptized as a baby. He cannot give any more land to the Roman Catholic Church because they already have more land than they know what to do with. It seems that Charles has nothing else to do now. That he can, or that he can do to continue to win favor of the Roman Catholic Church and have the Church look the other way around his military conquests. That's when Charles visits Pope Leo III in Rome, and in 800 AD struck a deal that resulted in the Carolingian dynasty becoming the spiritual leader of its conquered people. It's saying, oh, wait a minute, wait a minute, hold on. You're... Pope Leo III actually gave a layperson the ability to become a spiritual leader. Yes, that's right. That's exactly what Leo III more or less signed off on. Then what in anybody's name could Charles have possibly given Leo in return? Something that the Roman Catholic Church desperately needed. And Leo III wasn't the only pope that recognized this massive weakness in its infrastructure. Do you remember all of that land that Charles's ancestors gave the Roman Catholic Church? Remember when I said that the seeds were being sown to eventually give them the church enough rope to hang themselves with it? Exactly. You see, the Roman Catholic pope doesn't have an army. The church does not have an army to call its own. Therefore, as the Roman Catholic Church began to spread through its newly given territories, it recognized quickly it had no way to protect that land. Other civilizations, certainly the Muslims, were not going to recognize that as being legitimate land owned by the Roman Catholic Church. The church needed, therefore, military protection, and it needed it desperately. And that is what Pope Leo III was given. Leo, I'll give you my army. Essentially, my army will put its necks on the line to defend your land, but you therefore make me the spiritual leader of my people so that they will follow me. It was a deal that Pope Leo III regrettably agreed to and wanted to agree to in secrecy. Oh, no. Oh, no, you don't. Not only does Charles not want this to be done quietly or in secret, he wants to make this a grandiose spectacle for all of his people to be able to see and lay witness to. Therefore, on of all days, of all the calendar days in 800 AD, it would be on Christmas Day when Pope Leo III would crown Charlemagne in what was to become known as the first Holy Roman Emperor. It was political and military genius on the likes of Charles, to the point that Charles also modified his name to be called Charles the Great, And in the burgeoning French language coming out of Latin, he simply became known as Charlemagne. But let's rewind the tape a moment and let's unpack this brand new title, Holy Roman Emperor. First off, folks, there's arguably not a title, a human title in world and American history that was more off the mark than Holy Roman Emperor. First off, there was nothing holy about this. This was a political and military exchange, simply put. Roman? There's also very little that's Romanesque about it. A distinct European society has already been forged by several of Charlemagne's predecessors. And emperor? Please. Emperor and empire gives the indication of something that lasts for many, many leaders and several decades if not centuries and none of that is going to take place. By the time Charlemagne's own son dies that empire will be gone. The empire will be gone but the title won't be. The whole idea of these European principalities garnering around and under one flag is something that will arguably stay with the European people for the next 848 years, until the year 1648. As we will discuss much, much later on, the Holy Roman Emperor, or the Holy Roman Empire itself, is what generally is considered to be the First Reich. You hear about Adolf Hitler and the Third Reich, sometimes begs the question, why the Third? When was the Second? the 1860s under Otto von Bismarck. One was the first that started Christmas Day 800 AD under Charles, who then became christened Charlemagne. A lot to take in. I get that. But it is important to know the way that these little commoners in this small Carolingian and Merovingian family we able to figure out politically how to manipulate the church in order to justify its military gains. What this did, though, is clearly I'm not necessarily relaying this in positive terms or in a positive way, and I'm not. And the reason being is because this is the type of these, the types of actions that the eastern half of the Roman Empire and Constantinople, these were the things that, these events, these actions by the Roman Catholic Church is what Constantinople and the followers of the Christian faith in the eastern half of the Roman Empire were talking about. When they said, see, you Western Christians, you're jumping into bed with the politicians. Jesus didn't do that. Jesus didn't need the power of the sword. Jesus didn't worry about where his next meal was coming from. But you, Western Christian leaders, that seems to be all you're focused on. And that's the reason why I foreshadowed a few podcasts ago about the rise of the Orthodox Church, why in Orthodoxia, again translated, means right way, why they feel that they, as the centuries wear on, are staying truer and truer to the teachings of Jesus Christ, and while the West seems to be splitting further and further away. The last part that I just want to do a quick summary on is this idea of Charlemagne's kingship. Please know that it grew out of three things. Number one, Charles had papal authority. So if his own people wanted to disobey him to not follow his orders, to not Pay the taxes that were necessary to govern the kingdom. To deny Charles was to deny the Pope. And to deny the Pope was to deny God. If you think for a moment that this is an idea that's going to die with Charlemagne, think again. Because how many European leaders? will take continue to take that same page out of Charlemagne's playbook and continue to apply it for themselves. This is where we'll eventually get the term, the divine right monarchy, a monarchy where that person is in power because of divine intervention. This is what leads us to the second of the three things. So number one was papal authority. Leo III backing him up, visibly making Charles the spiritual leader of the European estates. The second was the formation of a form of government that even the Greeks didn't mess with, a theocratic monarchy. Monarchy, of course, meaning one, mono meaning one, but a monarchy that is not based on a democrat, on democratic principles, but rather is, to, is based on a theocracy, religion, the formation of a theocratic monarchy. This is our first evidenced in the Western world. And the third, finally, was imperial authority, imperialism, the idea that with the monarchy, meaning one leader, that Charlemagne had supreme authority over all matters. So within this, we see the genius of Charles and his predecessors, do we not? They figured out different ways that they could manipulate the Roman Catholic Church in order to back up what they wanted to do as lay people, as at one time outsiders. So with this backing, this is when Charles went to command more than 50 military campaigns with supposedly one loss. However, the Roman Catholic Church was not going to take a back seat to all of this revenue coming in from these conquered territories, and Charlemagne insisted that he would be fair in his tax collection and give the fair share to the Roman Catholic Church. And that's when Leo, who was also not stupid, said, great, trust, but verify, as a future 40th president of the United States would say to the Soviet Union, that of course being Ronald Reagan, sure, I trust you, but one of my own men is going to verify. And that's what gave us what's called the Missi Dominici, personal envoys for Charlemagne, always went out in two to collect the taxes. One priest, one layman, again, who would supervise government administration, specifically the raising of taxes. So, as we round out this podcast, I've introduced Charles. We looked at his predecessors. Why, however, then, some 1,200 years later and counting, Why does Charlemagne, by and large, get called the Great? If you notice, the Great is not a title that you've heard me mention many times yet in our World History Podcast. In fact, specifically, there's only been one prior to this, of course, that being Alexander the Great. There have been two greats as popes, Gregory and Leo. In Russian history, there's three greats, Ivan the Great, Catherine the Great, and Peter the Great. Then what is with this title the great? Is it something that, again, they're giving themselves? Well, they can, but then it dies with them if nobody agrees. But the fact is that these people are known as the great centuries, or in some cases, millennia later. We looked at and explored why Alexander was considered the great. But what did Charles do? What did Charles do that warrants that title some 1200 years later if he was all about military conquering that's not going to give him that title if it was about the manipulation of the roman catholic church the church would tear down that legacy and burn those pages of the history book so some future historian couldn't discuss it in a podcast no charles did something that we in the 21st century still thank him for. Because without his wherewithal, without his prescient thinking, much of what we know about the ancient world truly would have been lost to history. So what were these things? Well, I didn't get that far in the history book. So let me get back to that. I'll look that up, and that's what we'll discuss when we start the next podcast. So thank you for listening. Please go to my website, ceconsella.com. Email me with any questions or comments you might have, specifically book recommendations as well. And if you like what we discussed, please leave me for review as well. Thanks very much. Have a great day.